All right. Well, let's get started. Um, let me open us with a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Let's pray. Lord God, what a privilege it is this morning uh, to rise early and to be together as men, to consider your word together, specifically to think on issues of leadership and what your word says about the character qualities that are necessary to be godly leaders of our homes, um, in the church, in the world. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be serious about the scriptures, to be serious about our pursuit of holiness in the character of Christ. We pray this morning that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to conform us more and more to the image of your son. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, if you are new to the group, welcome. So glad that you're here. We have been dealing with issues of, of leadership. What does it mean to be a godly leader? What are the, the disciplines, habits, and commitments that a godly leader must have? And specifically, over the last five sessions, we've been dealing with purity and the pursuit of purity. If you missed that, all of those are on, on our, our podcast. And I sent out a link to that podcast, but if you didn't get that, please let me know. We post each one of these there. You can share that with other men um, and use that as an opportunity, but do listen to those as purity is obviously an issue that all of us need to be uh, diligent in. But now we're going to move to to other character traits that are essential for godly leaders. Uh, We've already been over the fact that we are called as men to lead. It is God's design in the home, uh, in the church, that male leadership is to be present. Uh, but we're not only called to, to lead, but we're called to lead in a certain way. Ours is a, a delegated leadership. So in our homes, we, we don't have full reign to lead in whatever way we want. We're to lead our families as unto the Lord, pointing them to Him. In the church, elders don't have the right to do what they want in the church. Their role is to lead in, according to the Scriptures as as Christ is the head of the church. And we'll be held accountable for our leadership. We see that in the scriptures. Um, and yet, if we're honest, it is, is all too tempting, uh, specifically in, in the home, but really in any area where we have any authority, to lead in a way that, that promotes what is most comfortable or most uh, acceptable according to our likes and preferences. Right? We can craft in our homes, an environment that really is built around what's most comfortable or desirable for us as individuals. And we want to be careful that the priorities that we have for our family and in the workplace or in the church are in accordance with the Word of God. And that's going to mean that our character has to match the Lord. And so we're, we're going to talk this morning specifically about leading with humility. Leading with humility. And this is such an important aspect of our leadership that we can't overlook. We cannot be Christ-like godly leaders and be proud, selfish men. Um, those, those things come into conflict. Now, we all deal with pride and selfishness. I'm not saying that we can be perfect in these things. But our leadership will only reflect Christ in the, in the measure in which we reflect the character of Christ ourselves. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning and next time. We're going to look over the next two sessions at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Today we'll be looking, uh, I'll do an overview of verses 1 and 2, but we'll look specifically at verses 3 and 4. And then next time we'll look at the illustration of those verses in in verses 5 to 11. 
These are likely, hopefully, familiar verses to you. I would say for Rebecca and I, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 is kind of a, a marriage life verse. For our marriage, these are the verses we come back to the most often. And in my leadership, these are verses I come back to often, and I hope they will be that for you as well. Now, let me just set up the book of Philippians for a moment. Obviously, Philippians, as, as I've mentioned several times in our study of Colossians, is one of Paul's prison epistles. It's written from the same prison cell as Colossians, so that the context and the historical setting is the same as the book of Colossians. Uh, we see in chapter 1 that, that Paul, really throughout the book, but Paul has this thoroughly Christian perspective. In Philippians, we get this idea of what it looks like to be a Christian in the midst of all of life's circumstances, especially here in prison. Paul is, is uh, in his understanding, <clears throat> committed to the fact that, that God will preserve His people. We see that in Philippians 1, verse 6, that He will complete the work that He began in them. And also we see this, this understanding of God's sovereignty in His imprisonment, that He's confident that no matter what the outcome of his imprisonment is in chapter 1, that God will use it for his glory. Um, this is Paul's overarching perspective. But when we get to verse 27, he turns to the Philippians specifically, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So now he's moving into instruction on how they are to live in a worthy manner. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. We don't have time to go into the nuts and bolts of it, but even in verse 29, we see this, this wonderful Christian perspective where he says it's been granted to you for Christ's sake to suffer. I'm not sure we think about suffering that way, but that's what Paul says. It's been granted to you. This is a gift from God. You get to suffer for the name of Christ, and that's a blessing. Um, of course, we see the apostles rejoicing when they're beaten and suffering for Christ because they bear his name. Now we come to chapter 2, and in the beginning of chapter 2, we start to flesh out how is it that we can conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And he begins in verse 1. I'm going to set up our passage by, by looking at uh, just a summary of verses 1 and 2, but we do have to understand it because it directly relates to verses 3 and 4. In Philippians 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This really sets up Paul's argument that's coming in the next verses. And we saw this in Colossians, but it's one of Paul's favorite techniques to kind of use some, some key theological truths to motivate us towards obedience. And that's what he does here. He's going to give four different theological truths that prepare us to want to obey the command that he's about to give. And he does it in the form of four conditional statements, if-then statements. But he gives us all four ifs, and then he gives us this one big then statement, which is the command. 
Notice the four if statements. These are really, they're, they're, they start with the word if, but in Greek, sometimes the emphasis of the word if is more like since. So he's, he's, not, he's not actually thinking that these are in question. He's saying these are truths, but he wants us to think about them. So he says, if, number one, there's any encouragement in Christ. As believers, do we have encouragement in Christ? Of course we do. Secondly, if there's any consolation of love. Do we have consolation of love? Are we consoled by the love of God? Of course we are. Verse number three, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Yes, we have fellowship with the Spirit. And fourthly, if any affection and compassion. Affection and compassion go together as a package here. So those are the four if statements that are really truth statements that lead us now to want to obey. It's almost like it builds momentum. Because we have encouragement in Christ, we have the consolation of God's love, and we have fellowship of the Spirit, and we have received affection and compassion from God, then, here comes the second half of the conditional statement, he says, make my joy complete. That's the command. Make my joy complete. Now, if we were had time, we'd go back to chapter 1 and see that Paul talks about his joy being their holiness, their continuance in sanctification. That's Paul's joy. So when he says, make my joy complete, what he's really saying is, continue on in your pursuit of Christ and sanctification. That's, that's his command. But then he, he balances this with four other statements. We have four if statements, a command, and then he fleshes out his making his joy complete with four more statements. He says, here's how you're going to make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now notice there, is a, there are some similarities there. Really, the, all of these emphasize the same idea. He wants them to be of the same mind. He wants them to have the same love. He wants them to be united in spirit. He wants them to have one purpose. What he's calling for is unity. I want you to be unified with one another. I want you to be like-minded together. And, and in this case, he's not focusing primarily on doctrinal unity. Doctrinal unity is always assumed. There is no unity in the church if there's not doctrinal unity. That stands always at the foundation. It is a facade of unity if we come together and we don't really agree on things. We just smile and pat each other on the back and say we're all unified. We're not really so, so it's not a denial of doctrinal unity. It's saying built upon that foundation, the church is to have a unity that goes even beyond our doctrinal unity to relational unity with one another, committed to the same love, committed to the same purpose, intent on that purpose. And this is where we as a church here at North Lake are going to be tempted to run into problems. I mean, it's not that we are impervious to doctrinal disunity. That, that certainly can happen. But we've done all that we can and continue to do to maintain a healthy foundation of doctrinal unity. It's this relational unity where we can run into trouble with one another in our homes um, and in other places. So the question then is posed to us, how do we maintain one mind, united in spirit? You know, how, how do we do that? And that's where verses 3 and 4 come in. It's going to require one essential virtue. Humility. Humility. That's the context of verses 3 and 4. It is the pursuit of fulfilling Paul's joy, which is our ultimate sanctification, which displays itself in the unity in the church, 
And the way that is accomplished is through humility. And so obviously we want to look at this in context, but also I'm wanting to make the specific application of how humility intersects our leadership. Because as, as men, we are to be leaders in unity, right? The, the unity of the church, unity in our, our homes, is, comes through the leadership of the men in the church. That's one of the reasons we started this Bible study. It was one of the first things we did when we started meeting is because I'm, I am convinced that biblical leadership, male leadership in the home and in the church, filters down to the church as a whole, and the church can follow that, Right? And so we have to be leaders in the pursuit of humility. And ultimately, that is what's going to cause us to maintain the kind of biblical unity we're called to. Now, with that in mind, that's sort of just context. Let's get to verses 3 and 4 and the cultivation of humility. How does this happen? How can we actually pursue humility in our lives? And these are verses that if you don't have them memorized... I would really, really encourage you to memorize them because they're that crucial for us to understand. In these verses, Paul follows the familiar pattern that we looked at for weeks and weeks in Colossians of putting off and putting on. He's going to give us the negative, don't do this, and he's going to follow that with the positive, do this. We've talked about it many times, so I won't belabor the point, but in sanctification, remember, it's never enough just to try to stop doing things. That's only step one. Then we renew our mind, and we actively put on righteousness. And that's what Paul's going to say here. Look with me then at Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's the first thing we've got to put off. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So we've got to talk about these two words, selfishness or concepts, and empty conceit. In the Greek language, there's actually no verb here which is totally fine in Greek. <clears throat> it, you can skip over particularly the verb, uh, verbs of being. So it actually reads this way. Nothing from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit. Notice that nothing is at the beginning of the statement. In the Greek language, that's how it's arranged. There's the emphasis there on nothing. Do nothing from selfishness and nothing from empty conceit. This, is a, this selfishness is a selfish disposition that defines every interaction a person has with, with other people. Selfishness or, or selfish ambition, as your text may have it, is a person that's consumed with their own preferences and their own desires. They struggle to, to consider or even see as valid the preferences and desires of others. They, they, they see the world through the lens of what they think. And what they want. And, and anything else that comes against that is seen as an immediate challenge. And so they, people can be dominated by selfishness. All of us deal with selfishness. But when selfishness is a dominating sin, it ruins your relationships. Um, it's displayed when we're unwilling to take the thoughts and desires and opinions of others into consideration. And this is... this. You should start to see how this ties into leadership right away. In our homes, if we are dominated by selfishness, then we are going to rule with a heavy hand. And any suggestion from our wives or, heaven forbid, our kids is going to be met with a prideful sense of how dare you challenge me, right? And that, men, is just ungodly. 
We never see Christ respond that way. Remember, Christ's responses of, of kind of when Christ was harsh or very pointed with people, who is he talking to typically in those contexts? Yeah, Pharisees, false teachers, people, people who are trying to lead astray the people of God from the truth. But when people come to him with questions that are honest questions, the rich young ruler, Nicodemus, how do we see him respond? Gentleness, kindness. He instructs them. Even the rich young ruler, here's this proud young man. Jesus says, well, you know the law, keep, keep the commandments. Which ones? And he tells him, he says, oh, great, I've done that. And Jesus, you know, Jesus is knowing, you know, you, you haven't done that. You know, you know he knows you haven't done that. But he doesn't say, you fool, you prideful fool. You, he doesn't say that. He says, okay, one thing you lack. He knows he, he lacks way more than one thing. But he puts his finger on the one thing that, that is, is really sort of this man's pet sin. He loves his wealth. He says, go sell all you have and come follow me. It says the man walked away sad because he had great riches. We see the, the compassion, slow to anger response of Jesus when he deals with people that have legitimate questions or concerns. But sometimes I think we, we love the aspect of Jesus where he rises up and he's boom and he's harsh and he's and he, you know, sort of the, the John the Baptist side of Jesus. You brood of vipers, right? And we take that so I'm being like Christ. Like, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. When, when, when people come to you who are under your authority and, and have a question or have a different opinion and we respond to them with pride... That is a, a, a selfish, prideful response when we're called to humility. Have you ever worked for a boss that, that used their authority really often to accomplish their own selfish desires? You ever worked for anybody like that? How fun is that? That environment, right? Um, I, I remember guys that I knew that went to the military. <clears throat> I was coming out of high school right as 9-11 was happening, so there was this huge rush to join the military, understandably so. And I remember years after, as they came through that, many of them started at, at, at the bottom. And if you've been in the military, you know that it's a hard place to start. And so as they got any level of authority, they would do all the ridiculous things to the people under them that were done to them, as almost as a way to get back at the guys. That So if, if their commanding officer would come in and throw all their clothes on the floor and make them pick them back up, that's what they would do. You know, if they'd make them run 18 miles with the gas mask on until they vomited, that's what they would do because that's what was done to them. And that, is a, that, is, that kind of leadership is, is terrible to sit under where it's clear you're just using your authority to accomplish your own desires, your own selfish ends. It's ungodly when we act that way. Have you ever worked for a person or been under someone's authority who was unwilling to give serious consideration to your suggestions or opinions? Maybe that was the atmosphere in your home. Dad's word was the final word, and if you even dared to think differently or indicate that you thought differently, his, you would feel his wrath. Maybe that was your home life. I hope it wasn't. But is it the home life that you're cultivating with your wife and kids where everyone's on eggshells around Dad? We have to be careful that we're leading with humility. This is what selfishness um, and empty conceit bring into the leadership role. So let's talk about this. What are some of the ways, I want some interaction here, what are some of the ways that selfishness shows itself in the way that we lead, particularly in the home, wives and children? What are some of the ways that that can show up? Maybe some familiar or, or regular areas where that's most tempting. 
TV. TV, yeah, for sure. As far as what we watch and when we watch it. Sporting events. Mm-hmm. Like what? As far as going to them or, or going to them or being involved in too much of that. Right, because that's what you how you want to spend your time or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just daily tasks, daily schedule stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meals. Yeah. Serving. Give me an example. Uh, sometimes uh, you, you've had a rough day at work, you're tired, meetings, a conflict, then you come home, all you want to do is just rest. Mm-hmm. But you have a wife and a kid, you want to serve them. Yeah. But the last thing you want is <laughs> not to do that. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I've heard about that. I've read about it in books. I've heard about it. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. What What else? Uh, any other examples? Who holds the remote? Yeah, holding the remote. Yeah. Coming home and expecting to be served instead of serving. Yeah, coming home and. You're my wife, so you say, no, that's not. Right. I'll put my feet up and you serve me. Yeah. Schedule for road trips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's do it my way. That's right. Oh yeah, that's a that could be a big one. It's interesting. We, we look forward to vacations, don't we? Like all year. And then we, we plan them, we come to them, and then sometimes they can be some, because we've all been planning different things. Right. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The two latest one planning something and I don't know about it. Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. Right. Which is worse. Which, you know, sometimes, sometimes Saturday mornings can be a big battleground for families, for husbands or wives, because all week long... There's the busyness of the week, and we're looking for Saturday to be kind of that rest point. And we have different, different ideas of what that's going to be. And one of you wakes up ready to go with a list of chores to do, and the other one's like, whoa, 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 I'm sleeping in. And then the next weekend, it can be the other, and it can be a big, a big battleground. Finances is another one, how we spend our money. I've seen husbands that are super tight-fisted with money when it comes to what their wife would like to do. But then... When they need something that they see is valuable, no problem. shows up at the house, right? New boat. You'll be careful. Yeah, you can't. We're not going to redo the kitchen, but that boat. You know, we get the, the kids in there and stuff. That'd be great family time. You know, those season tickets to the Cowboys. I mean, that's family time, right? I mean, that we need that. But you don't need a new oven. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> I mean, let's let's if, if we're gonna be if we're gonna be real, uh, intimacy in marriage can be a great place of selfishness, right? Uh, pursuing that in a way that's only thinking about our desires and needs. I was thinking how we serve. You know, it comes up when we serve in the church. Mm-hmm. We're involved in ministry too. You know, accepting ideas and the input comes into play in little things. Absolutely, in every realm and. Um, and, and church ministry is, is one of those where relationships can be... And this is what I'm saying. Two people that, that really doctrinally are, are either in lockstep or very, very close maybe get sideways with each other, but it's because of, of how many kids we need to have in this nursery class versus that nursery class, right? And I'm in charge, and I say five, and you say eight. And, you know, we have to be really careful in those, in those things. Giving and receiving feedback. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Mm, absolutely. What about with our kids specifically? And, and um, 
kids or grandkids, depending on what part of life you're in. But what are some ways that selfishness shows up in the leadership of our home in that way? How we discipline, when we discipline. Mm-hmm. Are we really upset that they are doing this because God said not to or because it's inconvenient for me at this moment? Yeah, that's one of the big ones for sure. I've also read about that in books. But, <laughs> but willingness to give up time, you know, spend all day at work, and then they want to show you their Lego or daily resources with me. Or, oh, yeah. Working at home, too. It's like I come downstairs for a drink or a snack or whatever, and they're like, you got a hug? I got to go. I know. <laughs> Am I really telling my daughter I'm not going to give you a hug? I know. Oh, it is, yeah. Especially, it's even worse when you're preparing a lesson on selfish, selfishness. <laughs> I get back to my office and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> well, that video you did a while back um, with your kids at home. Yeah. About them coming to the office and asking. The video, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Really yeah. Those are real things. Yeah. Sometimes as they get older, creating jobs and chores for them to do, not so much to develop their character, but because I'm really tired of doing that, right? Um, things like that. It's like growing up, I was supposed to, I mowed the yard. It was my job to mow the yard when we had this like husky Varna lawnmower that broke down. I had to jump start it every time to get it going. Then we, dad buys a, a John Deere and I've never mowed the yard since. <laughs> because it became a joy all of a sudden to drive that thing. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So you you get the idea. I I think we have to be really careful on what we're cultivating in our home, in the character of our leadership, and does it really display Christ? And we'll see uh, next week the actual illustration of Christ and the humility in his life. But there's a second concept here, not just selfishness, but empty conceit is the second concept he mentions. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Conceit. The old translation of this is vain glory. And this is the person who has a high opinion of themselves. And uh, it, it, it travels with selfishness. Our selfishness often is driven by a sense of, of a high opinion that I actually know what's right. And that's why I'm making you do it this way is because I, I, have, I have the knowledge needed to do that. This is a this is an inflated view of self, and it deludes us into thinking that it's okay to trample over others to get our way because really we're doing what's best for them because we have the best solution to the problem. To be very careful. John Calvin says this, Vain glory means any glorying in the flesh. For what ground of glorying have men in themselves that is not vanity? Uh, think about it this way. Think about the the gifts and talents that God has given you that are most prominent in your personal life. Maybe it's a musical ability or academic ability or athletic ability or ability with business or finance or carpentry. Whatever it is, when when you nail it down and say, "I'm, I'm by God's grace particularly gifted or talented at this, even in that, what room is there for personal pride and being conceited? You think about... Someone like LeBron James. LeBron James was a great basketball player. But does he have room to be proud of his ability to play basketball? Who gave him that? God did, right? Who made him his body the way it's built and those things? Did he develop those skills? Yes, but who gave him the raw materials that that's even a possibility for him? God did. Same thing with us, and that's, that's what Calvin is getting at. Really, any pride or 
empty conceit uh, is is not allowed in us. There's no room for it because we have nothing within ourselves to, to boast over. Every physical or mental attribute we possess was given to us by God. And so any ounce of, of pride then is, is really out of place. Now, this is a, a point where all of us should be under a heavy weight of conviction because each one of us deals with selfishness. Each one of us deals with pride. There's nobody here that's exempt from those things. But the first step in... in Killing that is recognizing those areas where they do exist in our life, where that selfishness is rearing its head, where that pride is rearing its head. And as we're instructed here, put it to death. Do nothing. nothing. I mean, that's a really exhaustive word. Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But as we've said, we're not only to be putting that off, but we're in its place to be putting on something else. So look back now at the text in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. With humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So in the place of selfishness and pride is to be put on humility. Humility is is a crucial virtue for every Christian especially in our our leadership and how we are to lead our our families in every other area. This is just contrary to our culture. It's contrary to our own fleshly desires, right? In fact, everything around us is telling us, you be you and love yourself. Take time for yourself. Make sure that you've loved yourself well because only then can you love others and yada, 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 and all these things that, are, that flip what the Bible says on its head. And the Bible says, no, deny yourself. Sacrifice for the benefit of other people. And understand that Paul is not advocating some sort of outward facade of humility, right? It's this fake veneer. He's also not advocating that we walk around with kind of an Eeyore personality of woe is me and I have nothing to be proud of, and I am just a terrible human being. Um, th- that actually can is is pride in humble clothes. That's what that is. One of the um, examples he gives in there is just giving. Give mm-hmm. and don't boast. Right, yeah, give without boasting and, or, or recognition. Yeah. And so, I say the world, though, makes it tough on that a lot of times. They'll be in sales my entire life. You know, we wanted to crush our objective. You know, we wanted to move the case and beat the other guy. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of built into that. Like, so the world does it. Whereas, you know, what you're saying with the Bible, it's humility. Yeah. But it's tough in the world, especially in the job market, when you're, you know, you're driven to yeah. crush the other guy. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, so, I, that's a good, it brings up a good point. Our, our, is humility... And the pursuit of excellence are those two things in uh, opposed to one another. Well, I don't think it's about not being aggressive in your work; it's in how you do it, how you go about it. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's work. Let's work that through then. Right. Right. So what, if you attribute what, to your to ourselves, like I close that deal because look how awesome I am. Right. You have a tendency to do that. Yeah. 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 Sure. Uh, but if we. I, if we put on humility and say, well, I hope where all that come from, walk through those questions, then we'd end up in a spot that, well, I use my resources well. That being a disciplined person use my resources well. Right. Successful. Give God yeah. the glory. Right. And of course, other people see you do that, too. 
which mm-hmm. I think is very helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's just that, you know, this in today's world, a lot of times, it's, you know, you've you got to be number one, you've got to be the best. And, right. But um, I think what you're saying, Drew, and I like that, is that when you don't do that, when you do show humility, other people will see that. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about, you know. I think there is a... Go ahead. I think actually it's a... I would look at it as an opportunity where you're able to be number one, but because of your your being humble all the time, they'd be like, "What's this? Di- why does he do it differently?" Yeah. To show others is actually a, a, a benefit to show Christ to others that yeah, we're in this world and you're getting number one, but in your heart, it could be a battle. Sometimes it's in me, sometimes it's yeah. that. But at the end of the day, when you're asked, you're like, "Well, you know, it's the Lord, you know, gifted me in His His way, His grace before men, and this is what, and you know, you're a hard worker too." Giving an opportunity for you to, to shine. Mm-hmm. You give the glory back to the Lord. Yeah, though. yeah right. Yeah, the, the Christian perspective is once we recognize whatever talents and giftedness I have is a gift from God that I'm now required to steward for His glory, I actually will work harder with more diligence than I would if my only goal is to beat you or to beat Him. And the outcome, when if, if I am first or whatever it is, is. Glory be to God, right? And so that becomes now a witnessing opportunity. And I would encourage you guys in your, in your workplace, for those of you who are still working, pursue excellence for the right reasons. And then if God blesses that and there's fruit of that, use it to glorify Him and to share the gospel. Um, but you're right. The world, the world puts it as, no, you, you be wet best, and if you get there, then you pat yourself on the back, and you enjoy the fruits of your labor solely for the sake of, I did it, and I'm the best. Um, and, and we have to be careful on those things. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I've had some great bosses, and, and they, they show the humility, but they almost lean towards they were also Christians. But in the workforce, it, it's unfortunate you have to navigate it, but Showing humility is weakness. It's seen by as weakness, yeah. Right, that's what. Hey, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. It's seen by weakness, and and uh, you have to be careful because you have to ex- try to ex- explain or show it that it's not weakness. And I'm comfortable with my own skin, but mm-hmm. they they view it as weakness, and they will attack. attack. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting with that too is that it is true. It's viewed as a, a weakness. A, a, Whereas pride and boasting is viewed almost as a, as a virtue, no, you're right. yeah. um, <laughs> but I think it's viewed as a weakness because it challenges people. Right? They see that and they're challenged by it, and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. It's like that guy's not taking all that he could, ta- all the benefits he could take from what he earned, and I am. So I have to knock that down because it makes me look bad. I think I think there's an aspect of that too. We even see that in worldly things like like football. They interview one guy afterwards. He had a great game. He, you know, he's a running back. He got 200 yards, and, and he talks about his if he talks about his offensive line and how great they were and how the blocking was there and he just did his job and everyone else did their job. And the commentators don't, don't really know what to do with it because they want to be like, that's right, you, you, you bet I got 200. I'm going to get 300 next week because I'm the best. I'm God's gift to football. That's, that, that's that's what we want. That's what they're like. Yeah, yeah. And then this guy gets, well, it wasn't really me. You know, the holes were really big because the offensive line was great. And they're like, I don't know what to do with this guy. But that, but that's an example of, of excellence with humility. I'm not saying all the guys that do that are Christians. I'm just saying that, that there, is, there is a way. And Jesus, I think, is the perfect example of that balance of, in, in his case, perfect moral excellence in every way, yet with Humility and constantly giving glory to the Father. I mean, there, there's a lot, a lot, lot that we could say about that. 
But, but you're right. The world is telling us not only is it wrong to pursue humility, but it's a virtue to pursue pride. And so we have to recognize that. And it's not just the world. Our own flesh promotes that within us. So we've got to be killing it, putting off selfishness and vainglory and pursuing instead the opposite righteous virtue. And the, the virtue here, just getting back to verse 3, is with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's really, really helpful. Really what Paul is advocating here is living out what Jesus said was the second greatest commandment in the law. Remember, what's the first greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all all your being. Secondly, what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that, people get mixed up on that love your neighbor as yourself because they, they, some people have actually taught, so you have to love yourself first and then you can love your neighbor. That, that is not what that means. He says love your neighbor as yourself, meaning you naturally from birth love yourself. Uh, you do. Even people that struggle with depression and things, really, the, the depression often comes from <clears throat> we love ourselves so much, we have such high expectations for what should be our reality that when it's not there, we get depressed because really, I should be doing better, I deserve more because I'm so great. And that's where depression ultimately comes from. But he's saying, you naturally love yourself. You do what benefits yourself and what pleases yourself. Flip that around and love other people that way and do what would be most beneficial to them. In fact, not only is this the second greatest commandment in the law, but it's actually a sign of being a true believer. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 and 16. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That's a way of saying we're true Christians. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But this does bring up an interesting thought, especially in the workplace, where some of you men, by God's grace, have have reached a level of authority or a higher position in your work where you have people under you that you're training or that report to you. And so they actually are, in a worldly sense, under you, right? You, you have gained some prominence over them. So how do we apply this in a situation where, in a worldly sense, I actually am over them? Well, John Calvin has a great uh, quote in his commentary on this. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a more of a lengthy quote, but, but stay with me on this. He says, but it is asked, how is it possible that one who is in reality distinguished above others can reckon those to be superior to him who he knows are greatly beneath him? He's talking about this idea. They're actually beneath me, but I've got to reckon them as higher than me. I answer that this altogether depends on a right estimate of God's gifts and our own infirmities. For however anyone may be distinguished by illustrious endowments, gifts, he ought to consider with himself that they have not been conferred upon him that he might be self-complacent, that he might exalt himself, or even that he might hold himself in esteem. Let him instead of this employ himself in correcting and detecting his faults, and he will have abundant occasion for humility. In others, on the other hand, he will regard with honor whatever there is of excellencies, 
and will by means of love bury their faults. Now, it was a long quote, but let me just summarize it. What he's saying is when it comes to yourself, if you want to view others as more important than yourself, you've got to do two things. When you think about yourself, think on your faults and your sins and work on those. Don't dwell on how great, how great you did and how awesome you are. When he says that, not in the way of making yourself depressed, but remember an accurate view of self that, yeah, that went well, but this is not going well, and so I've got to keep working on that. When it comes to others, you flip the equation around. He says, whatever excellencies are in them, that is the most honorable traits that God has put in them, dwell on these things and bury their faults with love. This is actually what uh, is, is commanded of us in First Peter. First Peter 4.8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. It's a great verse to memorize. Keep fervent. I mean, give your maximum effort towards loving one another. Why? Love covers a multitude of sins. It means that we're we're able to overlook the faults of others and cover them with love. Even even if they don't recognize that they've done something against us. Yeah. You say love covers multiple sins. Perfect example is Jesus. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is a perfect example. He's the the ultimate example of that, right? Um. And so let's flesh this out a little bit. Let's, let's go back to, it applies to any of these situations where you may have some leadership uh, function. But let's talk for a moment about our wives. If you're struggling with patience towards your wife, uh, how much time do you spend dwelling on the ways you wish that she was different rather than the things you appreciate most about her? Think about that. How much of your mental space is dedicated to, man, if my wife, if she could just turn the corner in this way, if she could just do that a little bit, if she just wasn't so that way, you know, our marriage would be better. Rather than saying, man, God, thank you for this about my wife. Man, she is exemplary in this. I am so glad that you gave me her as my wife because she's this. You see, if if you fill your mind with what you appreciate, I mean, search them out. Find them. Find the things about your wife. They are there. You married her for a reason, right? At, at some point, you, if, if, if you're struggling in your marriage now, I pray you're not, but at some point you thought she was just the best thing since sliced bread, and you, so much so that you married her, right? Go back to those things and begin to say, you know what, let me step back and notice. You know what, she's really good at this. And tell her that. And start to fill your mind with that. And when you're tempted to think on only her thoughts, th- uh, faults, Take that, cover those with love, and begin to fervently love her by thinking on what is best in her. Same thing with that, that irritating boss or coworker or whatever, where they're just, they just kind of rub you the wrong way for whatever reason. Practice this. Instead of just dwelling on, man, that is so frustrating that they are this way or that they are like that. Think on, man, you know what? He's really good at this. God has particularly gifted them at this. Dwell on that. And even compliment them um, in that verbally. And you'll notice that your heart begins to soften towards them. And you begin to cover their faults um, in your heart but with love. This is how we practically regard one another as more important than ourselves. It, it, just like we've said before, the battle with sin begins right here, right? It's between our ears. You've got to win the battle with sin in your thought life before it will show up in the fruit of your actions and your words. And so we've got to think differently about one another in the church. The thing is, even as Christians who are very doctrinally uh, like-minded, 
you're going to meet people that, you know, you just your personalities, they just don't quite mesh. You know, you just kind of rub against each other at times. That's going to happen in the church. Um, what do you do? You cover their faults with love, and you dwell on the things about them that are most praiseworthy. And you even tell them about them. And you will notice that it dramatically changes your disposition. Same thing happens with your kids, extended family, employees, neighbors, fellow church members, so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, this is the opposite of what our flesh wants to do. So we're going to have to put a lot of effort towards it. But as we do, it will not only cultivate unity, um, as, as is the point here in Philippians, but that we're going to be leading like Christ-like men in our homes and our families that other people can follow. So flip that inclination around that all of us have. to. Here's the truth. We are tempted to see the best in ourselves and cover our faults. When it comes to others, we're tempted to see their faults and not notice what's good in them. So we've got to flip it on both sides. We've got to see our own faults for what they are. And we've got to see the, the blessings in the lives of others. Now, there is a... Uh, there's more here as he continues on. Let's read verse 3 again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now he goes back to, in verse 4, something else we've got to put off. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. He doesn't say here that we should neglect our physical needs or treat our bodies harshly. This is not asceticism, uh, some sort of Roman Catholic idea of making ourselves holy by treating our bodies poorly. Um, but what he does say is that we should not be self-consumed with our own self-interest, right? That, that, that should not consume our, our thoughts and our perspective. Selfishness and pride produce an expectation that everyone should want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And if they don't, we become angry, hurt, despondent or confused. Have you ever been around somebody that just really struggles to go with the flow when they're in a group of people? Everything's a battle, where we're going to go, eat, when we're going to get there, you know, what we're going to do after that, and where the kids are going to sit, and what car they're going to ride. Everything for them is a battle. It's, no, 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 no. It's got to be this way because that car seats this side, and it's got to be a bit, and it's like, good mercy, this is really, this is not fun, right? You ever been around anybody like that? If you haven't, probably it's you. <laughs> right and, and it's just like this is sucking the fun out of this entire event and that's what this this is the person that only looks out for their own personal interests it's got to be my way and yeah there's a reason you know I, and i've got it all reason I've, I've got it spreadsheeted as to why it's better you know 10 percent of the time it's better than this and that you know there's always a reason but it's and it's an expression of the sin that paul is talking about the selfishness and empty conceit of placing myself above other people. It's a, it, 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 what it yields is a controlling behavior in our leadership, in our homes. Um, there, I, I've seen this in, in, in many, many ways in counseling, and it can get down to very, very petty, petty things um, where, where men dominate their wives to the point that, uh, that it's, it is... Uh, exhausting and um, just sort of presses down on them where they live in a bubble and constantly worried they're going to step out of line. And this is ungodly leadership, right? This is not Christ-like leadership in the home. We have to put these things to death. And putting them to death, again, 
goes back to the positive of what do we do instead. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We actively put on real concern. We cultivate real concern for the interests of others, for things that they would enjoy, preferences that they have. And we seek to accommodate those preferences when we can in our home. In our home life, how, how things, maybe it's how things are decorated or, or, or the order in which we do things. If there are things that you know just really your wife prefers, choose to let her have those things. I remember talking to one man who is, he was married to, to a sweet lady for like 25 years and she passed away. And he got married again. And when it came to closet organization, his first wife had a very particular way that the closet was organized. And he got used to that. You hang, you hang these kind of shirts here and these kind of pants here and socks go here. But his second wife, not so much. It was just kind of uh, mixed up everywhere. And so at first he's like, wait, 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 wait. This, this is not right. The closet is, you know, it's, it's out of whack. And then he stepped back and he's like, it's a closet. It doesn't really matter. Like if this, this, is, this is a preference issue that I can lay down to bless my wife, right? And so, guys, I would encourage you to step back and say, are, are there preference issues in my home with my, with my wife, with my kids? Are there preference issues in my workplace, in the church where I serve, where I just, I see it as better if we do it this way, but it's something I can lay down to bless this other person. Begin to look for those things. Because as you do that, you're also killing the sin that you're trying to put off. Every time that you choose to prefer someone else over yourself, you're, you're putting to death that self-interest, this pursuit of self, and pride. And so we have to be, we have to, uh, be careful to do these things. I mentioned uh, Sunday in our message on evangelism, cultivating a gospel lens. And I think that's a helpful thought here for this concept as well. Because our goal in our interactions with one another are really spiritual goals. I'm either in an evangelism situation if I'm with an unbeliever, or I'm in a discipleship situation where I'm trying to edify and build up a believer. If we cultivate, that goes for the home too, with our, with our wife and our kids. If we cultivate this gospel lens, you know that every action that I have, every decision I make, every conversation we have, has as its goal a spiritual goal. It's going to change things. If my goal for you is to come to know Christ or to be built up in Christ, I'm going to find it easier to prefer you over myself, to be patient with you, to show humility and selflessness. And so we have to keep that overarching goal. What is the goal for your marriage? What should be the goal for your marriage? What is the goal of Christ's marriage with his bride? Let's start with that. Somebody tell me. In Ephesians 5, what is the goal? What's he accomplishing? To present the church to God as sanctified. Yeah, holy, without any blemish. That's our goal for our marriage, is that we would push our wives, and that in the process we would be pushed to be holy, to be more like Christ. And so that comes back to even the little things of how the house is clean, where we go on vacation, what shows we watch and don't watch, and when we, all those things can filter into that overarching goal of as I prefer her over myself and I lay down my selfish desires, I am promoting her holiness. I'm leading her in holiness. Your wife ought to be able to follow your sacrificial leadership and become more humble and sacrificial herself. 
That's what we're doing in our marriages. Our kids, we want them to come to know Christ, and maybe we share the gospel with them, but do they see the effects of the gospel in our life? One of the most damaging things we can do to our kids is preach right doctrine and live as if it has no effect, right? We tell them, you be, so we'll quote to them, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, with your brother and your sister, you're being selfish and you're being whatever. And they're, they're thinking, kind of like you were with mom, <laughs> right? Got to be careful, men. The gospel is real. It really does transform lives and it's got to show up. That is the testimony. You should preach the gospel to your kids, but they should see it as well, lived out. There's, a, there's a, an illustration. I'll close with this because I know some of you guys have got to go work. There's an illustration in Kent Hughes' commentary that really stuck out to me. Um, and Actually, it's James Montgomery Boyce. Sorry, not Kent Hughes. James Montgomery Boyce. He tells a story of a, a Chinese Christian man who was a rice farmer. And uh, I've never grown rice, never even attempted to, but apparently it takes a lot of water to grow rice. And so they put up these barriers around their rice fields to hold the water in so it sits on top of the rice. And if you go, it's kind of staggered from one neighbor to the next. There's sort of like uh, levels, kind of like in these neighborhoods where things are built up. And his, his wicked, godless neighbor went over and tore down his barrier one day so that his neighbor's water would run downhill into his rice field and water his field so he didn't have to bring the water in. Um, he said, well, he rebuilt the barrier. The next day, he did it again for like a week. His neighbor kept tearing down the barrier so that it would steal the water into his field. This was a Christian man, so he goes to his church to seek counsel from leadership and to pray, and he comes up with a plan. And so the next day, he rises earlier than normal, and he first goes and waters his neighbor's field, and then he waters his own field. And ultimately... The story goes, he, he had an opportunity through that to lead his neighbor to Christ. His neighbor came to know the Lord. I just thought that was a good example of how we, even in that sense, the guy was being sinful towards him. He was, he was stealing from him. He was stealing time, labor, actual water. He chose, he said, how can I, through a gospel lens, be a testimony to Christ by setting aside my preferences and my selfish desires that in this case weren't even wrong to water your own rice field, to prefer him over myself. And through that, it became a vehicle to share the gospel. What are the rice fields in our lives with our kids, with our family, in our, in our workplace, in the church, where we can intentionally say, you know what, let me water that field for them. Let, let me be a blessing. Let me go out of my way to show the love of Christ to them. And as we close, let me just ask, would those who know you best describe you as humble? It's a humble man. How would those who live under your authority describe your leadership style? Is it a heavy hand? Is it a my way or the highway? Or is it constant service and serving and caring and pursuing and seeing their needs as more valuable than your own? How often do you take uh, the preferences and desires of others into consideration when you make decisions? I think these are questions we need to be asking. If you look at your life and you realize, you know what, my leadership in the home, it's, mm, it's not humble. It, it is, it's about my preferences. Everything's arranged around me. And I'd encourage you to do two things. One, take some time alone with the Lord, repent to the Lord, and then repent to your family. There's something about, it's, e it's much easier to go to God in prayer, God forgive me, it's different to sit across from your wife and say, sweetheart, 
I've been sinning against you in these ways. Would you please forgive me? But men, that will do two things. One, well, three things. One, it's biblical, and it's what we're commanded to do. Two, it will help cultivate. Every time you make a choice to be humble, to be selfish, selfless, it, it makes it easier to make that choice again. That becomes the new pattern. And so it will develop the biblical pattern. But thirdly, it will model repentance to your family. Your wife and your kids should know repentance because they see it in you. So when they sin and they have to come before the Lord or before you, they say, well, I know what to do because dad has done it. Repent to your wife and your kids in the areas you need to. Perhaps it's a coworker that you, you say, Man, my leadership style is not honored Christ. There's a gospel opportunity. You ever had a boss apologize to you for being a proud leader? I think that could make a big impact. So take these things to heart. It should uh, change the way we lead. And next time, we're going to look at a perfect illustration of what humility looks like lived out. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time that you've given to us, for the gift of your precious word. It's... It's like taking a bath, spiritually speaking, where it just it washes over us. We see our sin for what it is, and yet we also see that we're not trapped in our sin. There's forgiveness before you, and there's also the ability and the power to change because the Holy Spirit is still actively at work within us. Help us, God, to be more faithful copies of our Master, to be more faithful representatives of Him in our home. May our, our wives and our kids and our employees, our neighbors, people in the church, may they see Jesus in us, and may they... They sense the love of Christ towards them flowing from us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.